John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honour the son just as they honour the father. He who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth. A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just for I seek not to please myself but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favour, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burnt and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form. Nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, 
you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? But do not think I will, I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Amen. Let's come and pray that God will help us to appreciate this passage and grow from it as we think about it. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time we have to consider uh, this section of John and think about what Jesus has said. Please help us to benefit from uh, understanding who he is more and to grow stronger in our faith in you. Thank you for this time now and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I saw something in the newspaper, the Independent, uh, this week that uh, surprised me because you don't see it as regularly these days. I'm talking about this ad here that says, Father and Son's success in business in Port Macquarie. Uh, here we have uh, Lance Decker and Tony Decker who are, are telling the punters that although the father's winding down, the son is uh, stepping up to uh, carry on the family business so they can be assured that uh, they're in safe hands. Unfortunately, uh, Meredith got to that one and tried to make devils out of them, so that's why his teeth are a bit red. But uh, yeah, she was a bit upset about that. I told her that she was ruining my visual aid. And there was a number of other people listed on that sheet too as uh, those who were father-son success, success stories. Uh, some of you might have heard of Andrew Medici. He's got a son, George Medici, who's part of the family business now. And a few other guys as well. But uh, in a modern world, we find that this is not uh, as popular as it used to be because uh, big businesses tend to put the squeeze on small family businesses. Uh, and we also find that family businesses break apart as, as families get fragmented, as uh, kids sort of leave the home, go and study somewhere and then go and find a, a job in another part of the world away from their parents, grandparents and other grandchildren. And so there's a, a bit of a loss to our families uh, and the church experiences a little less richness as well as uh, this process of family fragmentation takes place and it happens so much. But in Jesus' time things were different. They te tended to be the norm for people to uh, start out in the family business, to learn the trade, to take it on and then pass the baton down to the next generation. And it's with that kind of background, that kind of uh, son seeing what his father does, that Jesus picks up on that kind of language in John chapter 5 in verse 19 and 20. But as we uh, get to that section, I'll just pick up what's stimulated Jesus to talk about his father-son relationship. First of all, we remember that uh, he's healed a crippled man on the Sabbath and the Jews weren't very happy about that. And Jesus gave the reason for him healing on the Sabbath, the reason being that his father was always at his work. The Bible talks about God as uh, ceasing from creating anything new, but here Jesus seems to be referring to how God maintains his creation. But they took offence at Jesus. They didn't like it when he called God his own father because they perceived rightly that he was 
uh, speaking in terms which showed that he was equal with God. And so he goes on to describe his work uh, as the same as God the Father's work. And if you're reading on, pick it up at verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do... He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. And so the Jews are starting to come to terms with the relationship that Jesus has with God the Father, and they can't drive a wedge between what God the Father's doing and what God the Son's doing. But at this point we're taken in again to one of those uh, deep mysteries about the unity and the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And we, we're coming to terms with the fact that Jesus uh, is keen to do his Father's will, but we also see that uh, Jesus doesn't always find it easy to do that will either. If we think about the time when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, we can see there that Jesus distinguishes between my will and thy will as he wrestled with the, uh, the notion of drinking the, the cup of God's wrath uh, for our sin. This is what one commentator said about the complexity of Jesus' desire to do uh, his Father's will but also having his own will. He says, Nor did Jesus find it easy to be reconciled to the Father's will. It literally terrified him because here was the concentrated essence of the tremendous mystery. It was overwhelming. He's talking about the Garden of Gethsemane experience. Jesus' victory came from choosing the Father's will rather than and even against his own. He willed what he did not want, embarking on an astonishing course of altruism. And so we see that uh, Jesus has a will, but he also uh, submits to his Father's will. And it's understandable that he wouldn't want to go through the the, uh, Garden of Gethsemane experience and the cross afterwards, but sees that he's committed to doing his Father's will. And so we see that they're unified in their work. Well, in point two in your outline, if you're following on, it says, the Father and Son are unified in their work of giving life and in judging. That's what the next section goes to talk about. First of all, we see that they're unified in giving spiritual life. I'll pick it up at verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he's pleased to give it. In verse 24, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. And down to verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. So these remind us that, uh, yes, God the Father is the life giver, but also God the Son is the giver of spiritual life. And these verses are a great comfort to us as well because as people who are... uh, have an inclination to sin that we um, even if we're right with God as his people we still fall short and we can still feel uh, guilty when we say things that we shouldn't when we do what we ought not to do when we don't live God's way we can still feel guilty but we need to keep coming back uh, to this good news 
that we can be um, forgiven. It's not wrong for us to uh, feel the Spirit's conviction of our sin. Uh, the alternative to that would be if we seed our consciences, if we uh, didn't listen to the Spirit's prompting. Uh, but here, what we're reminded of is when we do feel anxious, if there are times when you lay awake at night and you think about the things that you've done wrong, we can come back to the fact that we don't have condemnation if we're in Christ. We have crossed over from death to life. And these, these comforting words and verses are, are good things for us to dwell on, but not for us to hold all to ourselves as well. I can remember teaching an older group in a scripture class recently when we were looking at the sin of David and Bathsheba and also how King David put Uriah the Hittite out on the front line of the battle where he know, knew he'd be killed. Uh, and we talked about how even King David sinned but that there was forgiveness by another king, a better one than him, a king without sin, and that was King Jesus. And it was good to see the kids realise that, yep, even though they feel guilty for their sin and when they fall short, there is a saviour that they can find forgiveness in. And so it's good for us to be assured of forgiveness we have in Christ and it's good for us to hold, hold that out as well. Well, in the second place, we find that Jesus... And God the Father are united in the work of judgment. If you have a look down at verse 22, John writes, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. In verse uh, 26 and 27, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Verse 27, And he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. And down to verse 30, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. So here again we see that, in short, uh, God the Father has entrusted the judgment to Jesus the Son, and Jesus understands his role as a judge, as the son of man. Uh, who will judge. That's Son of Man references is taking us back to the book of Daniel where uh, the kingdoms of the world are in rebellion to God but the Son of Man approaches God the Father and enjoys kingship and dominion uh, and it seems brings judgment over all peoples. Uh, that reference in Daniel seems to refer to the people of Israel collectively. If you're taking notes you can have a look at Daniel 7, 17 and 18. And in verse 23, it talks about how the saints of the Most High uh, receive the kingdom and kingship. But Jesus is attributing this reference to the Son of Man to himself. He seems to be saying that he is the true Israel and that he does uh, receive kingship and dominion and he understands that role as a judging role. Here we're coming to terms with the idea that people aren't going to get away with living an autonomous life where they think they can just live how they want and not have uh, treated God with the honour that's due to him and they'll be called to account. And so what we see happening here is that uh, Jesus is the son of man who's going to be calling people to account. But where is this all going to be happening? Well, it's not going to be, to quote Star Wars, in a, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, what we see is that the resurrection of the dead takes place 
uh, in an earthly sphere. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, we read these verses. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And so we're getting the picture that there's a, an earthly resurrection and a judgment to take place. And it's within that context we also again see that Jesus and God the Father are united in raising the dead. Uh, if you look with me at verse 21, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. In verse 25, I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That might be referring to what's going to happen with Lazarus later on in the Gospel. And in 5 verse 28, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. It sounds like it's harking back to that Daniel reference. And those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. But who, would it, who is it uh, that are these good ones who are rising to live? Well, it seems to me that the gospel doesn't talk about salvation by works. Uh, we already read, God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And also, uh, later in John's Gospel, we read the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. So it seems to be against saying you can just get right with God by your own good works. But these people who do rise, the ones who have done good, seem to be the ones who are on the right side of the war, if you like. Uh, in John chapter 3, we find that whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. So the ones who are actually doing good, it seems to be these are the ones who are doing good because God's first uh, brought them into the light. They've come into the light, they are right with God, and they seem to be the ones who are doing good, who will be raised to be with Christ. Conversely, the, the ones who have done evil things, in John 3.19, we find there's another group, people who love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. These people won't come into the light. They seem to be the people who will rise to judgment. Either way, we see that Jesus is the one who uh, raises people uh, with God the Father, and as the Son of Man, he calls uh, people out of their tombs to either life or judgment. But all this talk about resurrection uh, into another age uh, can sound a little bit too fantastic. It can be hard for our imaginations to come to terms with a, a resurrection age and this kind of thing happening. Uh, but it is helpful to actually remember life as we see it and understand it now is actually still a shadow of something the Bible talks about as a new heavens and a new earth, something that's a, a, a terrific age really. Uh, and that's good for us to remember because of the, the struggles that we have here and now. Sometimes life gets boring. Sometimes we experience pain. Uh, and those are the times we long for a new age. And although our lives can you know, have an experience of the mundane and the pain and we, we long for a, 
a different time. Uh, there are times when we, we've got to come to terms with the fact that we've got things pretty good uh, compared to other people and other situations. Uh, and there are times when people are desperate for that time to come. I'll read you something that I read from Don Carson recently about this, which reminded me of why we should long for uh, this new age, this resurrection age. He visited Auschwitz in Germany uh, and recalled some of the difficult times for the people there. He says, this is when he visited um, Auschwitz one, I think it was, or, or two. Uh, and in one stone cell, you could see where a figure of Christ on the cross has been etched into the stone by the fingernails of successive generations of Christians in that little chamber. You can still see, see the piles of human hair waiting to be shipped back from the east into Germany to make fibre. And children's clothes, glasses and shoes all ready to be recycled. You can see it all. This is now. He's visited only a few years ago. In Auschwitz too, most of the shacks have been burned down, the ovens have been blown up, but in Auschwitz I, there wasn't time. So you can still see its gas chambers where they could get rid of over 2,000 people in about 20 minutes using Cyclone B, a cyanide derivative. I think we in the West have often misunderstood the significance of Auschwitz. I don't want to relativise its horror. In some ways, the horror was unique, in part because it was so efficient, because it combined this sort of horror with immaculate record-keeping. You can still see a lot of the records. By contrast, for example, when Pol Pot was murdering, he kept no records. It was out in the jungle. It wasn't quite as efficient. And then he goes on to say, this has been the bloodiest of all human centuries so far as we can estimate. At least 100 million people butchered, and that's apart from the wars. And in our wisdom in the West, we've concluded that there is no such thing as evil. And Don Carson says, now that's evil. I got pretty choked up as I read that this morning at the 9 o'clock service. Um, but I thought, in some ways, we, we think about a situation like that and it really does put into perspective some of the, the troubles and struggles that we have. And although we look forward to a resurrection age, there are certainly situations when uh, that time is the thing that we need to keep our hope focused in. And it reminded me of words uh, from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so he's, he's referring to a, a new age coming. Well, we're in point three in the outline. And in this story, we can see that uh, Jesus is reminding these people of a new age to come and that he's going to be the judge and the raiser of the dead. But these people don't seem to receive him. Uh, in verse 30 and 31, we're reminded that he, his judgment's dust because he's committed to doing his father's will. 
But then he comments on their failure to come to him for life, despite the fact that there are witnesses to him. Uh, he tells us that John the Baptist bore witness to him. If you pick it up at 5.31, we'll read down to 5.35. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favour, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. Verse 33, you have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. The people seemed to enjoy having John the Baptist around because he was a prophet, and they enjoyed having a prophet. But they didn't really take notice of the fact of what John was saying because John was pointing to Jesus as the Messiah to come. There's other references and witnesses to Jesus as well. Uh, he talks about himself in verse 31. I, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. And he comments further about his own testimony in verse 36. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the very work the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. So he doesn't uh, downplay his witness, but he's... Um, he also points out that people won't listen to him. They listen to perhaps other would-be messiahs. Down the list in verse 43, he says, I've come in my father's name and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. There's a sort of an irony that other pretender messiahs would be accepted, but Jesus, the messiah, uh, isn't accepted. And then Jesus comments that they, they don't have a very good attitude to listening to God either in verse 37 and 38. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. And then he makes his criticism pretty sharp. If he was going to talk about pushing someone's buttons, well, he pushes their buttons all at once here. Uh, these people took pride in studying the scriptures. And verse 39 says, You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And finally, he says to them, You don't even listen to Moses. Pick it up in verse 46. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? And so the take-home message is pretty clear here. He comes to his own, there are witnesses, but they don't receive him. And there's a good little lesson for us in these uh, sections as well. As we come to read the Bible, we've got to keep remembering to see the wood for the trees, as they say, and that Jesus is the key to the scriptures. Uh, John wrote in the Apocalypse, of Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Here Jesus is saying, the scriptures testify about me. As we read our Bibles, we shouldn't be doing it just out of a sense of legalism and I've got to, you know, I'm going to have somebody ask me about it, you know, how am I going with my Bible reading? We should be reading our Bibles because we want to get to know Jesus better. The whole book points to him uh, and we can appreciate more of who he is and what he's done as we come to read him in the pages of scripture. But in this passage we've seen that Jesus is complex. He's unified with God the Father. He's unified 
in giving spiritual life to people. We can enjoy not being condemned as we trust in him. He's the one who's going to bring the judgment. He's going to raise people from the dead and take those to eternal life and those to judgment. And he's the one who not only judges the world, but he gives life. And uh, we need to be those people who are on the right side of the war, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, those people who, like in John chapter 3, 21, are those who come into the light so that it might be seen that what we've done has been done through God. May God help us this week to wait for that resurrection time, but to live uh, as people of the light and to do what God calls us to do in his strength. Let's pray and ask God to help us do that. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for these verses which remind us about a different age that's coming, a resurrection age, when the struggles and the hardships of this age will pass away, and certainly all the horrors and the terrors as well. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come soon, but Lord, until then we pray that you would help us to live as people who've come into the light, knowing that Jesus is the light of the world. And we pray that you would change our hearts so that it might be seen that what we do has been done because you've worked in us. Lord God, give us the wisdom and the will and the desire to love you and to live your way. And we pray that you'd help us to encourage each other to do that this week in the power of your spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.